scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my brethren, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who ate the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word. May he be honored today by all that we do. Children, you're dismissed to your classes and please be seated. not here this morning, but before we get into today's message, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge and thank BJ, who had stepped up and had been filling the pulpit week after week for the last six months while Bob has been on his sabbatical. Bob will be returning to the pulpit in a couple weeks, but I wanted to just make sure to say thank you to BJ for faithfully bringing God's word to us over these last months. And I hope next time you see him, you'll uh, extend that same thanks to him. I think that uh, over the last six months, we've been well fed by what he has brought. So now let's uh, look at today's text that we just finished reading. We continue to look at Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and that B.J. has been taking us through diligently over most of the last uh, nine chapters. Um, I don't remember when we exactly started this series, maybe in November or October, so Bob had a little bit in the beginning, but uh, we're now through to the 10th chapter. Uh, This chapter is titled, or subtitled in my uh, version, the English 
standard version as warning against idolatry. So you kind of have a little bit of an idea what the topic will be a little bit. But while this section does pertain to idolatry, it also addresses some other sins that we will be discussing this morning. BJ has spoken some on idolatry and on food being offered to idols that was going on in the church of Corinth. And last week, as he took us through chapter 9, we learned that Paul wrote and that he demonstrated to the Corinthians that he had chosen to give up some of his rights, some of those freedoms that he would have as a Christian when it came to food and wine that had been sacrificed to any of the Greek gods that were being worshipped at the time by the uh, secular society around them in Corinth. And he did this for the purpose of winning others to Christ. He had made himself a servant, or a better translation would be a slave to all, to Jews, to Greeks, and to those who are weak as he discussed last week. And why did he do this? Paul tells us in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 9, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. He felt in his life and in his ministry that it was more important to make himself available to be able to witness and be a witness to the people around him that he had contact with for the sake of them coming to Christ than being able to practice his own Christian liberties. He gave them up. Paul concluded in the ninth chapter by giving the example, if you remember from last week, of an athlete who gave up things that may cost him or her a victory so that he might win a crown or a victor's wreath. An athlete sacrifices things in his or her life that might distract or might have a negative effect on their ability to win. And as an athlete would train and as an athlete would function in their races or in their, in their various um, sports that they may be contending in, that's how we are supposed to look at our Christian life and live in the same way, which may require sacrifices. Today's text in chapter 10 begins with the words, For I do not want for I, in some translations, which would indicate that what Paul is about to say and write in chapter 10 is to help clarify and illustrate what he had just finished talking about or writing about in the previous chapter or chapters. He then proceeds to give a summary of actions by the people of Israel as they were being led from captivity in in, um, Egypt which is considered the Exodus. For those who have been in church and know of those stories, I'm presuming that most of you do. The original events were documented in Exodus chapters 13 through 17 that Paul summarizes here. And Paul previously wrote concerning different groups in the church community. We just mentioned the Jews, converted Jews typically, the Greeks, the weak, uh, he broke them down into to specific groups that he was discussing. But here in this text, he wrote that all were involved. In the first four verses, he used the word all five times, referring to every member of the Israelite community. He wasn't breaking them down into tribes or saved and unsaved or any other type of group, when he's, dis- when he's talking about these events, he's talking about the whole tribe or the whole community of the Israelites. And he said, our fathers were all under the cloud. 
all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. The Israelites were a special people to God. They were his chosen people who were under his protection. And because of this, he blessed them and provided for them. And even remembering some of the Exodus story, as they were getting ready to leave, what did he do? He, he put it on the hearts of the Egyptians, their captors, to give them pretty much anything they wanted. Wealth, crops, food, you know, whatever. And, and just poured things on them as, as God was leading them out so that they would have things to go into the wilderness with. He, he parted the Red Sea that they might cross it. They provided food. He provided water. They were under his protection. The early life of the nation of Israel was frequently brought up in the early church days and at the time that Paul is writing here. But it, and it was usually used to rejoice and praise God for their deliverance. It's a, a miraculous thing that took place during the Exodus and God saving his people, his redemption for his chosen people, which is a beautiful picture for us as Christians today. So it was usually being used to rejoice and praise God for their deliverance and their, his great provision. But it was also occasionally used to warn later generations of judgment for not obeying God and turning away from him, just as Paul is doing here in his message. It was a wonderful thing what God did, but the people sinned against him and was punished for it. And we need to learn from that story too, not just the first part of it. The sins of the church in Corinth that Paul addresses in this letter of sexual immorality and idolatry, which were rampant in Corinth and in that society around them, are no different than the sexual immorality and the idolatry of the early Israelites, as, especially as they were coming out of Egypt and going into the wilderness. And both the Corinthians and the, the Israelites invited God's judgment to come upon them because of their sins, because of that sexual immorality and their idolatry. From verse 1 through 5, Paul introduces the comparison between the peoples, between the Israelites and the Corinthian church. He wrote, Don't be ignorant, my brothers. While the early generations of Israel had great privileges from God because of his choosing them as his people, God was displeased with most of them. So here... He chooses the Israelite people. He blesses them and protects them and, and provides for them. But in the end, Paul says that God was displeased with them because of their sins. In fact, according to the story of God taking them from the captivity to the promised land, there were only two men, if you remember, who were older than the age of 19 who were allowed to enter into the promised land because of the great sins of the people during the travels in the wilderness. In fact, the way he did that is he had them wander around that wilderness for 40 years until most of the people died. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who trusted God and did not fear the inhabitants of Canaan, they were allowed to enter. Not even Moses and Aaron were allowed to enter because they had disqualified themselves to enter into the promised land. Paul is calling on the Corinthians to remember what happened to the people of Israel in the wilderness because they lived with freedom without self-control. Remember BJ talking about that some last week. They didn't have self-control. They had all these freedoms that they thought they could exercise and, were be, and they would be blessed and they were 
able to do things without consequence. But God was not pleased with them. It's as if Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look into this mirror, Corinthian church, at the life of the Israelites in this time period, and you'll see your own reflection. They were doing many of the same things that the Israelite people were guilty of. And God was displeased. In verse 6, it tells us that these historical events were documented in scriptures as an example of those who came after them. These things that are written in the, the whole of scripture and these events that Paul is talking to about the Corinthians in, in detail here, they are examples for the Corinthians to look at. And they're examples for us. Paal included the Corinthians located, the Christians that are located in Corinth, but it also includes us with this message coming to us, because of the phrase that he uses in the age of the church, or in the, the uh, uh, present age, we'll get there in just a second. There are four major sins of the Israelite people that Paul identifies in the next verses. In verse 7, he mentions idolatry. In verse 8, he mentions sexual immorality. In verse 9, testing God. And in verse 10, complaining. So while this text is on idolatry, there are other reasons, other sins that the Israelites were doing and probably the Corinthians were doing too, and that's why they were brought up, that they were doing that was displeasing to God. The recording of these events are meant for those of us who follow, including us, to have examples of God's redemptive and His judging purposes among His people. God saves us. God loves us. He provides for us. But that's not all that the story tells us about of the Israelites or of the Corinthian church. How do we know that these early histories were for the Corinthian Christians and how do we know that they apply for us? Paul is an apostle. And because he was an apostle, God gave him apostolic authority and provincial understanding so that when he wrote this and he brought together the, the examples that he brings together and the words that it brings together, he has the, the um, influence and the breathing of the Holy Spirit on him to tie these things together and be able to go, look, what these things that the Israelite people were doing at this time, this is what you were doing too. And remember what took place. Remember what happened. So he ties the Corinthians to them. And then in verse 11, Paul wrote that these examples were written as examples to those whom the end of the age is, has come. That ties us and all the Christians between us and the days of Paul and all that may be after us if God does not come back right away. All those people, these examples are for us to learn from. That is the current age where we are until the Lord returns. Sometimes it's called the church age. Sometimes it's called the age of the Christian church. Sometimes it's called the present age. It all means the same thing. And you know, that's why reading the Old Testament books are so important for us as New Testament Christians. Many times we kind of forget about reading in our studies the Old Testament. And it's because there is so much there to learn from. These stories that are there are there for our example and our instruction. Don't neglect the Old Testament. 
in your readings and in your private studies. We as elders have to kind of remind ourselves occasionally to go into one of the Old Testament books to teach and to preach from because we're so focused sometimes, I think, on the New Testament books that we have to remind ourselves that, no, we also need to teach from the Old Testament. If you want to know the whole story, you have to read the whole book. Just like any book that you read, you don't just go to the end. I mean, maybe some of you do. You don't just go to the end to find out what happens in the story. You want to start at the beginning and work your way through it and see how the story develops. And we get that when we read the Bible in its entirety. Paul wrote these things that took place as examples for us. He included himself in that. The us means him. You know, we look at Paul and we think of, you know, he, he was instrumental and God used him to write much of the New Testament. He was an apostle. He was a follower of Christ when, uh, or, or uh, uh, an apostle and met with Christ. If you, if you uh, know the early uh, beginnings of, of Paul there in the wilderness. But we don't think of him really in the same sense we think of other humans. Right? We, we think of Paul, I mean, this great apostle who did great things, but he wore flesh too. He's in a fleshly body just like we are. So he includes himself when he brought up that he too was a sinner and that he's able also to have evil desires just like the Corinthians do. And that's the reason that he wrote this passage, he tells us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And that's in verse 6 of chapter 10. The problem that Paul is writing about to the Corinthians is sin. That's what he's writing about. The problem with the people in the wilderness were that they had desired evil things. They desired sin. They coveted or longed after evil things. These same desires were evident in the Christian, the church in Corinth in Paul's day, which is why he was able to, com- to compare them to the Egyptian or to the uh, Israelites. The Israelites took God's blessing for granted. They knew that God's hand was on them. They saw the cloud during the day. They saw the fire at night. They knew God was present and protecting them. They just witnessed all these things that took place. And instead of rejoicing in that and serving Him and honoring Him and being obedient to them, they instead took it for granted and they became self-confident thinking that they can do whatever they desired and would be protected. But this self-confidence led them to sin against God. And then they ended up having to face God's judgment because of it. Paul tells us in this summary that thousands died during each of these different described events. Except for those under 20 years of age and Joshua and Caleb. All the people died. They weren't allowed to to enter the promised land. What a horrible part of their story that they went through all the things that took place over those years with the hope of maybe one day seeing and entering into the promised land of God and to not be able to do it because of their sin. Christian, if, if you are living in such a manner like the Corinthians, like the Israelites, where you desire evil things by placing other things before God, 
or you seek out and desire sexual immorality in whatever form that may present itself to you, if you're testing God, or if you're grumbling or complaining against God, then please accept a warning from me this morning from seeing this this part of this letter that Paul is addressing the Corinthians about. Please accept this as a warning. Confess your sins, turn from those sinful practices and repent of them and be obedient to your Savior. These are written here as a warning to us, as an example of what happens when you don't follow God, when you don't live the life that you're supposed to be living and you choose to, to pursue these evil desires. Be careful if you think that you can do things that you want to do just because you're a believer. Just because you've made a profession of faith sometime in your past, it might give you the false um, thought that because of that, I'm going to be forgiven so I can kind of do whatever I want to do. Because while you may be saved, God will not let you to continue doing habitual sin without disciplining you. We read that in many places in Scripture. If you are one of God's children and you choose to seek after evil things and consistently keep going in that direction, one, there's a, there's a big problem with your faith and with your way you're living life. But if you truly are one of God's children, watch out because God will not let you continue doing that. He will bring you back someday. The other option besides truly being saved and choosing to sin is that living like this could also be an indication that your salvation is not real anyway. If you're thinking that you're saved and you're choosing to live this way, it's a possibility that maybe you're fooling yourself that you're saved because you should not be living this way. You think you're saved, but your desires in your life would be evidence that you're not. This verse expresses exactly what the problem of the Corinthians were. Some of them felt that they could safely stand in the church community without fear of judgment and do the various things that we've been reading that the Corinthian church has been doing. Some of them are just horrible things, but they thought that they can stand safely in the church, even when they were living in a manner that wasn't called, wasn't worthy of their calling. They were doing things that they knew could not be right. For some reason, as I was writing this, I couldn't help but think about a particular group of people that we would have in our own local church here as I prepared this today today if you're someone who has grown up in the church and I know that we have many that that may involve our own children were that way we were in church every time the church door was open Um, so our children was in church much more than even I was growing up but if you or someone who grew up in the church you were maybe raised by a Christian family if you're in church, that often probably are. You can easily find yourself, I think, in, a, in this type of a position. Just, just because you are in a Christian family or that you go to church regularly does not mean that you are saved or that you would be granted the privileges that come from being a child of God. You may be a recipient of some of the general blessings of God that take place because you are part of a Christian family or a Christian church. 
there are blessings that would fall upon you by being part of God's people. But the individual relationship must be between you and God. You can't get to heaven based on your parents' salvation, especially the children here today. This has to be something between you and God, not your parents and God on your behalf. Be careful if you think that you're strong enough in your faith to live on the edge or to live by your own strength if you're a Christian. Paul says to watch out lest you fall. Now as a Christian, this would never mean that if you fall, that you would lose your salvation. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith reminds us of this truth when it says, They whom God has accepted in His beloved Jesus Christ, His only Son, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can never totally or finally, finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So when this passage, or when this uh, verse that Paul gave us, be, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, that can't mean as a believer you fall and you lose your salvation. Because we know from other places in Scripture that that is not the case, that you don't lose your salvation. Falling for a believer is falling away from fellowship and removing yourself from the blessings and joy that come from being in daily fellowship with Christ. That's where you would suffer loss, but it never indicates that you would lose your salvation. Verse 13 is one of the first Bible verses that I recall ever memorizing. It was out of vacation Bible school and I was pretty young. I don't know what age I was at, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I was younger than 10 at, at this time. And it's no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will let you, not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word temptation here can also be translated as trials, such as it was used in James chapter 1, if you remember that passage. Temptation and trials would be the same Greek word being used. But regardless of the difficult situation that you as a Christian face in this life, if you obey God and trust Him, you will be strengthened by the experience. That's what this verse and that's what James chapter 1 is talking about. But if instead you doubt God and you disobey Him and you're not faithful to Him, you'll open yourself up to falling into evil and potentially sin. When I was reading this, I thought of Job and how he faced the many trials that he did that were impossible to even imagine going through the pain and suffering and trials that he did as a, as a human, as a father. And how in his own strength he would have never been able to do what he did. But he did remain faithful to God through the circumstances. And in the end, he endured as this passage, this verse, verse 13, promises that you may be able to endure it. Job was able to endure it because he remained faithful to God. God will never tempt you to evil. That's impossible for him to do it. So it's not God tempting you. It is God giving you the power to be able to escape the temptation that comes your way. 
when you face a temptation, God will always make sure that you have a way of escape available to you. As a Christian, you may face many, many temptations in life. Probably every day you face various temptations. Temptations to sin. Temptations to do things that would be disobedient to God. And Satan knows your specific weaknesses. So he can customize the temptations just for you to try to hamstring you, try to trip you, to try to pull you away from your relationship with God. But you will never be able to be tempted beyond what you can get through by using the escape route that God provides you for the situation. What a great verse that is to be able to meditate on. That the things we deal with, the temptations and trials we deal with in life, every day, God always gives us an escape route. There's always a way to get out of it. It's when you allow your desires to control you that you'll be lured into sin. So if you choose instead to not take the escape route, then more than likely you're going to be giving in to whatever that temptation was. Temptation is not the same as sin. I think people worry sometimes that, you know, I'm tempted by these things all the time. I keep running into this problem where I'm being tempted to do things. But the temptation is not the sin. It's only when you give in to the temptation that it becomes sin. You will face temptations of various sorts. But seek God's escape route and don't fall into it. Remember, as we face temptations, that there is a life rope dangling nearby to grab and escape the situation and to get out of it. When you are successful, when you do walk away from that temptation, when you do escape, you grow stronger. That's how we grow in our faith. That's how we grow in our walk in Christ, is dealing with those temptations. But when you give in, the opposite takes place. You grow weaker, making yourself very susceptible to maybe giving in all the time in particular sins. Our ability to overcome temptation is only because God gives us the strength to stand strong through the Holy Spirit. For So if you're tempted and you escape, it's not because you've been reading your Bible every day and you're a lot smarter than Satan was on that particular instance and out, outsmarted him, it's because God gave you an escape route, but he also gives you the power through his Holy Spirit to escape. He's our helper, remember. That's what he was sent here for, to help us to grow, to learn, help us to overcome those temptations that we face. And this verse says that God is faithful. He's faithful to his people and will and has secured their standing before him. God will help you get through things and get through life. The next section of this chapter begins with verse 14 and here he reiterates the argument that he previously stated that they should not eat meat and drink wine that had been dedicated or sacrificed to idols. Remember that was the discussion that we had over the last couple chapters and Paul saying that no, that you should not be doing this. He clearly admonishes them by stating flee from idolatry. Idolatry is not good. Stay away from it, Corinthians. Paul understands that physical idols are really nothing. He isn't worried about the idol having some power because he knows it doesn't. 
that is not the physical idol. They're not real. They're not really gods with a little g. However, he does know that behind the idols are demons, which are fallen angels who are serving their master, Satan. Remember all the fallen angels who came out with Lucifer from heaven and was cast out of heaven. All these people are there and these, these beings are there and demons are real. There are spiritual demons behind evil that is seeking you out. That is doing all the horrible things that take place around us. They're behind it. This is a method of keeping people away from the one true God when these demons are able to use this graven image, this image that might look like a dog or might look like a a, a person or a God of some sort that has no real power in its own, but that's what they are able to use to draw other people. You know, people, humans have a, a natural desire built in them to seek out spiritual things in the sense of seeking God or seeking something spiritual. They know there's more to it. And if they don't find God, the one true God, they're probably going to one of these false gods such as the Corinthians were doing. It was prevalent throughout the Roman Empire at the time. And it's still prevalent in many places including the United States. We may not be worshiping little carved idols, but we have all types of other idols that we worship in the United States and in Western civilization. Paul continues to compare the Lord's Supper with a meal that was typically given for a pagan. When you're sacrificing to the pagans and worshiping pagans, they did very similar things that... um, people in Judaism and people in Christianity did. And he compares the Lord's Supper and the meal that takes place during this event and compares it to a pagan meal. And his purpose is to demonstrate the danger to Christians of taking part in pagan meals. There were, and I think BJ brought some of this up last week. Remember, there were times when people as Christians in the Corinthian church, they would go to people's homes or go to events and maybe be invited to a meal. And usually the meat or the wine or both had been sacrificed or dedicated to a false god. And the question was, is this something a Christian can do. Can I go here and partake in this knowing that there is no real God here so I should be able to eat the food or drink the wine? And Paul is getting into the meat of that saying, no, if you know that it is something dedicated to God, you can't have any part of that. Flee idolatry. There's a danger to Christians to to participate in this. The ultimate point in his his, uh, argument is allegiance. Where does your allegiance lie? If it's to God, then you need to be faithful to God. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, he tells them, and the table of demons. You can't do both. And I think he gives us an explanation about why. Why can't I do that? Because it would provoke God to jealousy. He's a jealous God. He demands allegiance of his children. And he won't share that allegiance with anybody else. So do not partake of this table of demons. I think today we can learn from this text that deals with idolatry and eating meals with items dedicated to idols as we live our daily lives. Will we place God in second or third place 
if we do what we desire to do? I mean, that's what we're doing when we, we have circumstances, temptations possibly, but desires to do certain things. The question that you should be asking yourself is by doing this, will I put God in second or third place? And I'll put this event or this thing I want to do in first place. Because if that is what takes place, then we are putting an idol in front of God. Idolatry is placing anything, anything at all. It can be a relationship. It can be a job. It could be seeking wealth. It could be seeking security in some way. It could be seeking whatever your desires may be, even if in itself that thing may not be bad if it's in a position in your life where it takes first place then it became an idol and you're in the wrong you would be sinning to do that that's idolatry so we can worship idols as the Corinthians did today in our society we do there's probably things, if you sat and really kind of looked at things in your life, you'll probably find that there may be a couple things that you had bumped into the position of being an idol in your life and maybe didn't even realize it. And it needs to be confessed. It needs to be made right. We are to live daily in obedience to God and trust in Him and follow Him which we can only do by our faithful God giving us the strength and ability to do it. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to help us. We need the Holy Spirit to help us give wisdom to be able to pick out where those idols are in our life. Right? We need to get rid of that stuff out of our life and the way we identify them is the Holy Spirit will put it on our heart. They go, you know, you put a little bit too much emphasis on this. To the point it's become an idol. We need to get rid of this. Pray that he will continue working in your life to make you an obedient servant who strives to keep him first in your life. That's what a life of a Christian is supposed to be. That's what Paul, in many of his texts, is encouraging us to be. Keeping God first in our lives. That includes making decisions daily to either give in or to give or to give into our desires or by choosing to give up something of our Christian freedoms. The original thing we were talking about. Are there things that we may as a Christian need to give up for the sake of maybe being able to reach people around us? There are things that you could probably do as a Christian and in itself wouldn't be wrong. But are there things that you should need to set aside so that you might be able to reach that family member that's lost in your family or that best friend or your schoolmate or your co-worker? Paul chose to do that so that he can make himself more adaptable to be able to reach the lost around him. Chapter 10 here is a very interesting chapter. There's a lot more in there that you could go off on, uh, not necessarily tangents, but rabbit trails, if you will, of finding out, you know, what does he mean about the cup of blessing and things like that. There's lots of things you could talk about in chapter 10, but we just don't have time for it this morning. But we will wrap up here and we will actually take time uh, in a moment to celebrate the Lord's meal, the Lord's Supper, communion together. And uh, maybe as the song is going on, as you come up, if there's something in particular that maybe this text has brought to your attention that 
that your celebra- your your allegiance is torn between God and something else, this might be a good time for you to confess it before we celebrate together. So let's stand. And uh, the elements are here. Once you take them, just hold them until everyone is served. And we'll celebrate together. The song is Behold the Lamb. And come on up and take the.
chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God bless you. Thank you for coming today. We hope that you can stay with us. We'll start barbecuing as soon as we can get it up and going and uh, get started. So spend some time fellowshipping and hang around. We look forward to seeing you. Let's close in prayer and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for this book that you've given us for our nourishment, for our example, for our instruction, for our discipline. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take it and feed it to us daily. Help us to understand it. Help us to to, uh, be strengthened in our walk with Christ by, by reading it and studying it frequently and by living in obedience to its words. But we know we need the Holy Spirit to even help us do that. Lord, we pray that you will make us into the men and women that you want us to be. Help us to be people who are quick to confess sin and turn from it. Help us to be people who are quick to be willing to sacrifice even of ourselves and our Christian freedoms for the sake of maybe someone around us coming to Christ. Help us to be people, Lord, that pray and reach out to our community. Forgive us for where we fail you, Lord. Forgive us for our sins. And we pray that you will continue to bless this local body. And uh, Lord, we love you. And we even say a blessing now over the food that will be eaten in a little while. We thank you for it. We thank you for the provision. We pray you bless it to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. So one final song and then you are dismissed.
is 